Well, if you found your spot there in Matthew chapter 21, just turn to your right, 26 books, and find Revelation chapter 1. We're going to take a little diversion. And as I was thinking this past week about how all this would fit together, it's nothing short of the providence of God that we've been talking around a lot of these same themes even through Matthew's gospel. But I want to read Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20. Revelation 1 verses 9 through 20. The goal is not to do an exposition of these verses, but I do want to read these verses to sort of set the scene and put the picture in your mind of what we will study, which will be primarily found in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of the Revelation. So we'll begin here. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give illumination and understanding and application and conviction of sin and power to turn 
Lord Jesus, we pray that as, as we listen and as we look at your word, you would magnify yourself in our minds and in our hearts, that we would understand repentance as a church. Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In Matthew's Gospel, as we've walked through chapter 21 for the past several weeks, it seems like every application comes to the point where obviously we turn and we look at ourselves, but because the theme there in that final week of the Lord's life is, is judgment as it comes upon the nation of Israel and their religious empire in the person of Christ, it seems every week the application is sort of, of a turning and looking at ourselves and, and calling ourselves to, to examine how this would play out, this type of repentance would play out in our own lives. You'll remember we, we talked about the fig tree and how it wasn't bearing fruit. And, and if we wanted to put a, a, a heading over this type of fruit that we should produce, we could say that it's... It's practical, true practical piety lived out in our lives, which, is, which the roots of that would be repentance and faith. We've, again, called weekly for self-examination. We talked about the need for a, a definitive change last week as we saw those two sons, and one, one said at first that he would not go, but then afterward he changed his mind. And so hopefully you've seen... And I think I said this early on that the next several weeks as, and months as we work through Matthew's gospel, a lot of the application is going to be like that. It's going to be sort of hard-edged and sharp and you're going to wonder, are we ever going to get to a, a comforting passage of Scripture? And I don't want to come across, as I heard this week, I don't want to come across as sort of a one-trick pony where you know every sermon is just stabbing. But we're in one of those sections of Scripture where that is, is sort of the case. Well... Let me ask you, when we talk about repentance, and when I say repent, or when I ask you to look at yourself, who do you find that doctrine, or for whom do you find that doctrine necessary? When I say repent, and I begin to give specific applications about repentance, and you are hearing in your mind repent, and repentance and those words, in the deepest recesses of your heart, who is repenting? Who needs it? Who, who do you think I'm talking to? Now, I know you, you would say, well, you're talking to us. But, but really, who's on your mind when I say repent? When I preach and I bring out the application and I say you need to repent, who comes to your mind as the one who needs to repent? Now, I hope at least outwardly you would say, well, it's me. I need to repent. We should all be very clear that the command to repent and believe the gospel is not merely for that lost family member or that lost co-worker who has obvious areas of public sin where we would look and we could point and say, well, they need to repent. The Bible doesn't tell you to get them to repent. The Scripture says you repent. And so when, I, when, when we hear that word, I hope that you think about yourself. It's for us. You, believer, Christian, saint, need to repent and believe the gospel every day. And I do too. I have to repent and believe the gospel 
every single day. But I wonder how many of you have ever considered the need for repentance from a corporate perspective? A corporate perspective. In other words, do you think about repentance as a member of the local church? But not just as an individual member, and not just looking at the other members and saying, well, he needs to repent, he needs to repent, she needs to repent. But have you ever considered the idea of repentance and what it looks like when, when you, along with the rest of us, get together and we repent as parts of a unified body? Well, that's what I want to do today is I want you to think about this church, not other churches. I want us to think about this church, including yourself as a member. If we're a body, maybe you're an elbow or a toe or a finger or a mouth or an ear or an armpit, but you're a member, you're a part of a body. I want you to think, what does it look like for this body as a whole to repent. Have you ever thought about that? Very often the most pious would say, well, well, of course I'm the one that needs to repent, but how, how often do we think about the, this biblical idea of repenting corporately? Well, I want to look at chapters 2 and 3 of this revelation, the introduction to which I read at the beginning, verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1. Because I believe when we unpack these chapters, we will see that corporate repentance, while it's either overlooked or misunderstood, is actually of supreme importance to a local church. While we do call others to repent, we have to start with us. And while we do seek repentance ourselves, we have to remember that as believers, we're not just individuals. We're not singled out from the body all of the time. We do, we are members of a body and that body sometimes is walking in a wrong direction and sometimes that body needs to stop and turn and walk in the other direction. So, that's what I want us to, to do today. So first, as we unpack these, these two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, beginning with the introduction that I read from chapter 1, we need to understand the speaker in these chapters, in this section, we could say all the way through to the end of the book of the Revelation, who is speaking? Well, if you still have your Bible open, and hopefully you do, you can see um, chapter 1 and verse 4, we read these words. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So we can say, first of all, very simply, the apostle John, who was the last living apostle of our Lord, was the immediate penman. He had the pen in his hand and he wrote all of this out for the very first time. But we can take a step further, and there I read to you in verse 18, we have a speaker. We could start in verse 17. One, this, this speaker says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So we have one who's died, and then who came back from the dead, and who lives forever. And in verse 11, he's the one who says to John, Write. Now who's speaking here? Who is telling John what to write? 
What's obvious, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He died, He was raised from the dead, and now He has come. He's speaking to John, and so as John writes, he's writing the words of Christ. He's writing what Christ tells him to write. But then we can also go to sort of a third tier or a third level of, of authorship. Notice in verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 17. What the Spirit says. Chapter 2, verse 29. What the Spirit says. Chapter 3, verse 6. What the Spirit says. Chapter 3, verse 13, what the Spirit says. Chapter 3, verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if we wanted to go just a third step deeper in understanding who is speaking, we would say it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking. Christ is speaking through His Holy Spirit. So the Apostle John is recording the words of the risen and reigning Christ as He speaks by, the, by way of His own Holy Spirit. Now, if we wanted to put all of that together, it is simple enough to say, Christ speaks. When we read these letters, it is Jesus Christ who is speaking. Our God is a speaking God. We know that the Word was with God in the beginning, and we also know that the Word was God in the beginning from this very same author, John. We know that that Word of God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ speaks and is God's final and complete and ultimate Word to His people. And in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3... It is that same eternal, unchanging God in Christ speaking to His people. So now we know the speaker. Let's look secondly at the audience. We need to understand who is being addressed here. And I'm going to break this up into two halves. First, them and then us. We'll start with the original audience, them. In chapter 1 and verse 13, we read this phrase... John says, on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's verse 12 and verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Having spent a lot of time in Matthew's gospel, we know who the son of man is. That's the Lord Jesus again. But what are these lampstands? That's strange to us. Well, John tells us in verse 20 of chapter 1, that here recording the words of Jesus... As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. These seven lampstands in the midst of which Christ walks represent seven local churches. These are, to use the language that our Lord uses and that John uses, the, and that's important, the seven churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus, which we know from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, which 
Paul also, uh, to whom Paul also wrote a letter, and Laodicea, seven churches. And so the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is speaking to seven specific local churches that actually existed in John's lifetime. But we also know that these churches and their cities, as we read them here, if you were to put them on a map in the very way that they're listed in Scripture, they're listed in a clockwise order along a postal route that would have started at Ephesus, which was right on the, the border of the sea. Patmos was an island right off in the sea. Ephesus was right on the sea. And then as you walk your way around this clockwise circle, you would hit Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. This was a postal route. In other words, when the mailman got the mail from uh, Ephesus, which was a port town, a very busy, bustling port city, he would start his journey and he would go all the way around and he would end up back at Ephesus. Now that's obviously very beneficial for carrying mail. You just go along the circle. So that's the original audience. Seven particular churches in seven cities along this important postal route of the first century. Now let's look at the other half of the audience, us. If our goal is to take what has been written in these letters and apply them to ourselves and our own situation in any way, I think we need to first prove that such a, a transition from 1st century to 21st century is an appropriate transition. And that would be an appropriate application of these letters. The question is, can we do that? Can we read their mail and apply it to us. Well, I think we can, and I actually think that we should, and I think if you don't, then you're missing, out, missing the whole point of these letters. And I come to that conclusion based on a few observations from this section, or when we think about what's happening. First, these are not the only churches. We read over and over, the seven churches, the churches... But these were not the only seven churches. Even in Asia Minor, there were probably around 10 to 15 churches. And we also know from around this same period, a little before this period, that Peter also wrote to churches. And there were believers in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia. And so these were not the only churches. These seven churches have been chosen specifically out from the rest of all of the other churches that could have been addressed, I believe because they're on this postal route. The second thing that we need to remember is the significance of the number seven in biblical numerology. Seven is that number that represents completion and fullness or the, the totality of a thing. And so in a book of highly pictorial language throughout... It would only make sense that the number seven, like practically every other number in the book, points to something bigger than just these seven churches. He's, he has chosen seven to point us to a bigger reality, namely, all of the churches that would ever exist from the time of John until the time of the return of Christ. These churches represent... All churches. The third observation that leads me to believe we should take these letters personally is that these seven letters, if you notice, are all a part of one letter together. 
It would be as if your mailman printed all of the mail for your street on one long sheet of paper, made a bunch of copies of it, and rolled it up, and everybody got a copy. And you would read your neighbor's mail, and, and they would read yours, and everybody knew what was going on in everybody else's business. That's exactly what would happen. These weren't separate letters. This was, uh, Jesus says, write what you see in a book. He wrote it all down in one letter, one book, and then that was distributed throughout. And so even from the very beginning, they were not exclusive. Every church read every other church's mail, which was probably sort of embarrassing to some of these churches. They would have all known what was going on in all of the other churches. The fourth observation, uh, hopefully you noticed as I read concerning the Spirit's authorship of these letters, that at the end of every individual letter we have this, this phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In chapter 2 and verse 7, chapter 2 and verse 11, what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 17, to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 29, to the churches. 3.13, to the churches. 3.22, to the churches. In every individual letter, it closes with something to the effect of, listen up, church, to what the Spirit is saying to all of the churches. So I think what we learn is that John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ, Recording the words of Christ is mediating a message, yes, to seven real-life local churches from the first century, but those churches typify all churches from that time until the time Christ returns. And some of you men will remember that William Perkins, in his, in his description of the book of the Revelation, said that it is a prophetic history of the condition of the church from the age in which John the Apostle lived until the end of the world. Christ is speaking to all of His churches. And that fits what we've seen before in the New Testament and what Christ Himself says about His continued ministry in His churches. In Matthew 18, 20, He says, Where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I in their midst, or there am I among them. Not meaning when your family and another family just bumps into each other at Walmart. Well, here's a church. It's not what he's saying. He meant when the local church gathers with the authority of Christ in, in church discipline, Christ is there. Matthew 28 and verse 20, he says, Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And remember, that can't just apply to the apostles because they didn't live until the end of the age. He's saying, I'll always be with you. I promise churches I'll always be with you. And so here we see His continued ministry to these churches and to all of His churches. And so based on all of that, I think it's safe and necessary to take their mail, open it up and read it, and then use their mail to examine ourselves as a church. So we know the audience, or the speaker, now we know the audience. And then thirdly, let's unpack the message. The message. Surely, we can agree that if these are the words of Christ to His churches, Christ is our Lord and we are one of His churches, then whatever He has said needs to be understood and heeded. It's worthy of our time. It's worthy of our, our observation. We have in these letters a very clear example of, Thus saith the Lord. And so we, uh, hopefully our ears perk up 
when, when we understand that. We, we need to hear it, treasure it. We need to heed it, obey it. We need to give ourselves to it. It's important. So what is the message in these letters? Well, again, we're going to divide it up, the message then and the message now. When we begin to unpack the message then, it's here that we have to ascend up into the sky and sort of look from very high. You know me. I couldn't preach these two chapters in six months probably. So we don't have the time to get into every detail of every letter, but we can come away with three general observations that are evident in all of these letters. Three observations that sort of summarize the message. The first observation is this. Christ was aware of their works. He was aware of their works. In chapter 2 and verse 2, writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works. This church was very strong in doctrinal discernment. This church had waged war against false teachers. This would have been a church that had all of their I's dotted and all of their T's crossed when it came to their doctrine. And yet they were loveless, they were passionless, they had no real zeal for Christ. They loved to be correct more than they loved the person of their Lord. And Christ knew it. Can you imagine what that might look like in our day? I think we can. In chapter 2 and verse 9, he writes to the church of Smyrna. And he tells them, I know your tribulation and your poverty. The first church that does not receive a rebuke. They were being slandered and afflicted by ethnic Jews. And their martyrdom was certain. In verse 10, he tells them, be faithful unto death. He gives them a death sentence. You will die. And he exhorted them, be faithful unto death. In these letters, I think it's interesting to see most of them are called to repent. The only two who are not called to repent are suffering under severe affliction. So there, there's, there's your, there are your options, A or B. Receive constant rebuke and charges to repent or be the type of church that doesn't receive that rebuke and you'll just be persecuted and maybe killed. Those are the two options. In chapter 2 and verse 13, he wrote to the church at Pergamum, I know where you dwell. He knew that they lived in a cultural melting pot of paganism. And he knew that there was always this pressure to capitulate just a little bit just to fit in with the culture so that they didn't seem so strange where they lived. And he also knew that there were some in the church already teaching, just go along to get along. On that issue, you know, don't let that be something that breaks, breaks you apart from the culture. If you begin to do that, well, people are going to know that you've gone off the deep end. And they were beginning to tolerate that type of teaching. They let it go on. It was filling their ears. As a church body, they were not harsh enough with the false teachers. They wouldn't go to them and say, cut that out. Don't even, don't even talk like that. They wouldn't do it. 
Christ knew where they dwelt. In chapter 2 and verse 19, he writes to the church at Thyatira, Again, I know your works, just like in Ephesus. He knew that they lived in a city that was ran by trade guilds and labor unions. And he knew that this church and the people in it were tempted to, again, go along to get along just to survive. You know, if, they, if, if your town is run by labor unions, if you don't join the union, you have no business. And so they were being tempted by this threat. Well, if you don't go along, you can't work. You can't live. You can't buy groceries. You, can't, you won't be able to do anything. This is not a tattoo on their hand or their forehead. It was just going along with the world, adopting the spirit of the age so that they could eat. And he says, and you're starting to do it. You're starting to take up that idolatry because you've said in your minds, well, we're not going to be able to eat. We won't live. This church was the opposite of the church in Ephesus. This church had no discernment. They were all worldly love and acceptance and tolerance. They didn't want to create too much of a, a hardship, a, a, a disagreement between themselves and the culture. They wanted to feel safe. They wanted that comfort of knowing that they could work and, and survive in that city. In chapter 3 and verse 1, he writes to the church at Sardis and he tells them, I know your works. They thought that they were alive. They thought that they were doing well. They thought that they were doing great and mighty things for the kingdom. This church was popular. It was bustling. They had a, a very good reputation in their community. And yet he says, you're dead. And you don't even know it. They had forgotten their purpose. They had no true mission. They were not a gospel threat in their community. Everybody loved the church of Sardis. But they were dead, according to the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 8, he writes to the church at Philadelphia. The second of the two churches who are not rebuked and called to repentance. And he tells them, I know your works. These people were poor. And yet they were very determined. They were meek, and yet they were resolved to stay the course. And we learn from the letter that Christ loved that church. He says in verse 9, And they will learn that I have, I have loved you. And remember, Paul wrote to that church in Philippians 3.9, he says, You're my joy and crown. Paul also loved this church, but they were poor and meek and lowly. Again, one of the only two that are not called to repentance. And then the last church, in chapter 3 and verse 15, he writes to Laodicea and he tells them, I know your works. He knew that they were so ineffective that it began to make him sick. They were useless to the point of regurgitation. Again, they were of no benefit to their community at all. They thought that they had all that they needed. They thought that they were alive and well, just like the church in Sardis. They had no idea. They were only superficially well, only outwardly well. As, in other words, the church at Laodicea could meet today. The community wouldn't know it. And they could shut their doors next week. The community wouldn't know it. 
They wouldn't care. Completely ineffective. Christ, the Lord of the churches, was fully aware of every detail of their beliefs and practices. He knows the situation in each city. He knows that they have pressures from within the churches and from without the churches. He knew where they were standing strong and where they were falling short. The point is, He knows. He knows their works. Second observation. He commanded, Christ commanded repentance where it was necessary. All of the churches except two, the two that were severely persecuted, were commanded to repent, to turn from their ways, to change their minds with regard to sin and turn to God in faith. That's repentance. Repentance is not... I've received conviction for my sin. I acknowledge that my sin is wrong, and so I'll stop doing my sin. That's not repentance. Because what you're ultimately going to end up doing is you'll turn from your sin, but you'll turn to another sin called moralism or self-righteousness. As long as I'm not doing the wrong thing, I must be doing the right thing. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning from sin and fleeing to God. It's running to Christ instead of sin. How many of us are doing that? How many of us are turning from sin and we're not saying, well, I don't do that sin anymore? And that's it. But you're not running to Christ. You don't care anything about Christ. You just want to make sure you're not doing the wrong things. That's not repentance. He's calling these churches to repent. He is commanding these churches as congregations, not just individuals, but as congregations to repent. Even if the sins were only specific to a few, it was the church as a whole that was commanded to repent. In other words, local churches were expected to take responsibility for their erring members. Even in Thyatira, where they were tolerating that woman Jezebel, we read... Chapter 2 and verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. You see, it's, it's everybody. When it, when it has come into the church, everybody needs to repent. But if you're not actually committing the sin, you're allowing it to continue. So everybody needs to repent. Christ commands repentance. It's not just a doctrine to consider or a, a, just a long word to, to spout, it is a command to obey. Repent. If you don't repent, which entails turning from sin and to God, you are disobeying God. So there you need to repent again. Christ commands these churches to repent where it is necessary. And thirdly, the third observation from these letters is that Christ threatens judgment upon disobedience. He threatens judgment upon disobedience. In the churches where He commands repentance, He threatens to come in judgment. He threatens to remove their lampstand. That is, He will remove their ability to be effective. He threatens to come in judgment with the sword of His mouth. He threatens to render judgment to them according to their, their evil. He threatens to come like a thief upon them. He knows their works. 
He commands them to repent and He threatens them if they will not. Now most of us, I think, would agree that God continues right now to work all things according to the counsel of His will. That Christ is upholding all things by the word of His power. Every detail of every event in, in all of creation is being carried out and executed by God according to His eternal decree. But when it comes to the church, very often we tend to carry on like Christ comes by on the first Sunday and gives you the key to the building with the key to the kingdom of heaven dangling from it. And He says, here's the key. I'll let you know if I need anything. And then He just hits the road and we're left to just sort of take things from there. Just, just carry on. Just sort of do the best you can. But really, He gave us the keys and so it's ultimately up to us. Well, we see here that that is absolutely not the case. But rather, every church named, representing all churches, in all places, in all times, is reminded that the Lord and head of the church is still watching, still examining, still exhorting, still rebuking, still threatening His churches. That's the message then, to them. How does this apply to us? Well, I think it's clear, is it not? I could just, all we have to do is understand what's happening in the, ver in the chapters to, to apply it. But let's add, add some things that we know are also true here. Hebrews 13.8 tells us Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changed. We also know that the churches of Christ still stand. There are still churches today, true churches. And many of them still have the same issues. In none of these, none of these letters did Christ say, you're not a church. You're, not, you're a false church. You're just faking it. They were churches. And, and true churches still exist today with many of these same issues. Can you imagine a cold passionless orthodoxy in a church? Can you, a ch can you imagine a church that would tolerate a little bit of falsehood? You know, most of the book is good. Just There's some things that we, we wouldn't agree with here and there, but they'll tolerate a little bit of falsehood in the church. Can you imagine a church that might compromise a little bit with idolatry in order to keep the peace with their culture? Can you imagine a church that seems to be outwardly popular with everybody? Everybody loves that church. And yet, if you were to go and visit and just see what's happening, you would think, well, they're an inch deep and a mile wide. I don't understand what the draw is here. They're dead. Can you imagine a church that's basically ineffective and useless in the community? That if they met today, I mean, they would know, but nobody else would. And, and if they had to shut their doors next week, well, they might be sort of bummed, but nobody else would. And, and they would just all sort of find somewhere to be, completely useless and ineffective. Is this our church? Maybe we have a mixture that's probably the way it's meant to be read. Maybe we have a mixture of a little bit of each and every one of these. Maybe we do have more of one than the other. 
The question is, do you consider it? Do you even imagine? Everybody, pretty much everybody that goes to a church thinks their church is the best church. You know, that's why they go. They wouldn't go to a church and be like, well, this is pretty much the worst church in the area, but we drive here. They wouldn't do that. Everywhere you go, everybody thinks their church is the best church for good reason. We should be where we believe that things are being done biblically. But how often do we stop and think, maybe we're not right where we should be? Churches still stand with many of the same issues. Christ is still aware of our works. His flaming eyes have not missed a single one of our thoughts, actions, or intentions. His commands have been preserved. They're etched in holy writ to be preserved forever. And His threats are still here. I can close the book. The ink's still there when I open it back up. The threats are still there. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this will always be here. These threats are not going anywhere. So what can we learn? Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, observes, analyzes, and surveys His churches. And where there is sin, He commands repentance. And He threatens this church. If you do not, you're done. I'll come. I'll lock the door. Now we might come and go in and out for years and years and years. But he'll say, I'm done. A lot of you got to experience that when we went to pick up some of this furniture and equipment that we got from the, the church in Lincolnton. Everything's still sitting there. They just left. And I wonder if we would recognize it. If we would even recognize if Christ had walked out the front door and stopped and wrote Ichabod over the frame and left and we never noticed it. We just came and went, came and went every week, not even realizing that he wasn't here. Would we assume that because our orthodoxy is as correct as we think we can get it at this point, Christ must be here? He must be blessing us? Remember the man Micah in Judges chapter 17. He says, I know that the Lord will prosper me, for I have a Levite as a priest. He's like, I have the outward worship. I mean, I have some remnant of orthodoxy. So God must be pleased with what I'm doing here. All the while worshiping an idol he made out of silver in his house. How many of us would say, well, we have all the outward frills, or maybe we, we, we should ask, do we have all the outward frills? And again, for Reformed churches, all of the outward frills means no outward frills. So we would come together and we say, we have no outward frills. And we, we think, well... I, now I know the Lord will prosper me. We've gotten rid of all of our outward frills. And yet we're still worshiping an idol because we're worshiping a Jesus who would never come into a church with no frills and say, repent. You're doing it wrong. Fix it. Change it. Do something differently. If your Jesus would never do that to your church, it's not the right Jesus. Because the Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever comes to His churches and He says, repent. We're not suffering. We're not under, the, under affliction very much. We're, uh, I don't think any of us, I could say to you, you've you got 10 days. You know, you're going to die soon. You will be killed for your faith. Press on. Make it to the end. It'll be better after you're dead. I don't have to say that to anybody here. So I think option A is where we are. Christ says, repent. There's always something that must be repented of. So in these two chapters, we see Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church, 
We see that he still walks in the midst of his churches. He still knows them. He still watches them. He still commands repentance. If we will obey as a church, there will be blessings. If we will not obey, there will be threatenings and there will be judgments. Now, I'm not here before we move into some application. I don't know what the specific areas might be. I'm not the church. I could point to some things and say, we might need to examine how this or that, but the application is not, here are all the areas where we need to repent. That's going to be for us to decide as a body. We have to come to those conclusions ourselves, and it's also not something that we will come to, and then next week we'll be, well, I'm glad I got that behind me, or we got that behind us. The whole point is throughout the life of the church, the church as a body is constantly repenting. We're constantly as a whole turning from sin to Christ. We're looking to Him all of the time. We're not going to get to the point where we say, I'm glad I obeyed the command so that I don't have to undergo the threatenings. It's, that's not the point. It is a lifestyle. And so I believe it's the duty of our church. We need to work on this. We need to cultivate an atmosphere of corporate repentance. And maybe this is the application. Again, this is, this is, these conversations should start and continue, but maybe the, the only application, the immediate application, is that we need to cultivate this atmosphere. An atmosphere is the pervading tone or mood of a place. You know that. You go into a restaurant, the food's great, but the atmosphere's weird, so you don't eat there, even though the food's great. Some places you go and the atmosphere is great, but the food's not that good, and so you keep going there. That's the atmosphere. It's the mood. And so when I say we need to cultivate an atmosphere of corporate repentance, I'm saying the overall demeanor or attitude of our church as a congregation, as a body, as a unit should be characterized by repentance. All of us together. We say we turn from sin as a body. And whatever kinds of sins might affect a body... Those might be differently than individual sins. They're going to look differently and they're going to come at us differently. But we have to say in unison together, we turn from sin. We pursue Christ as a body. Turning away from sin in our hearts and in our minds and toward God in faithful trust should characterize the congregation both inwardly and outwardly. An atmosphere, you know, is, is created and felt. It's not hidden. It's not unknown. You know it. That the whole point of the atmosphere is it is the, the experience, the, the, the feeling. So we must labor to create an atmosphere of repentance in our church. And this is not to the exclusion of an atmosphere of love and grace and mercy and patience. All of those we have to also work on. You see, it's work. It's labor. So what is the process of cultivating an atmosphere of corporate repentance? The first thing that we have to be able to do is we have to be able to recognize an atmosphere of repentance. Just like a restaurant, you can walk in and say, this is not a family atmosphere, and you can back slowly out the door covering your children's eyes. You just, need, you just recognize it. So we need to recognize it. Very often we might think that this is true of us when it's not, or maybe it is true. And we, we've just never noticed it before. We've never considered it. I would not err towards that second one first. I would err towards we think it's true and it's not. So here are three things that will characterize a church that has an atmosphere of repentance. First, preached repentance will be expected. 
preached repentance will be expected. Remember, Christ still speaks today through the Word of God. And the Word of God in a church is used most commonly and most effectively through week-in and week-out expositions of Scripture. Just every Lord's Day, we're just walking through the Bible together, those expositions being done by the man or men that God has given to the church. And so when there is an atmosphere of repentance, preached repentance will be expected because we know Christ calls His churches to repent and He does that through the preached Word. And so there will be the expectation by you, the congregants, for the preacher, whoever he may be, whether it's me or somebody else, you should expect the word repentance to be used or the command, repent. You should expect that. That should be normal. The congregation should expect that repentance will be explained what it is, what it is not, why it's necessary, why it must continue. You should expect to hear words like turn, change, stop, cut it out, quit it, how dare you, why would you do that? That should be normal. We should expect that from the pulpit. Where there's an atmosphere of repentance, the elders are going to be aware of the issues in the lives of the flock. I've told you before, it's my job to be in your business. And so, there will be preaching that deals with your sins. Y'all understand that, right? It's your sins. And I'm going to use personal pronouns like you and y'all and your. We talked about this several weeks ago. I've heard the sermon. I've already preached this sermon one time. And even before that, I heard it many times. I know. I'm getting it. But when I stand here, I'm going to talk to you. There will be mention of specific sins that are known in the congregation. There will be awkward moments where everybody knows who we're talking about, who's being spoken of. And there will be times when nobody knows, but you're going to feel like the Word of God has pierced you to the back wall up there, and you're hanging there, and everybody has turned around and is just staring at your sin. It's not so. Nobody knows, but you will feel that way. And these things should be expected from the preached Word. Again, we go through these seasons where there are a lot of hard-edged applications, and sometimes we're going to go through, through, through times when there's just a lot of comfort and a lot of joy and a lot of, of encouragement and, and exhortation to holiness and delight. And sometimes that might be, there might be both in one sermon, but we should at least expect that every sermon is not going to leave me feeling... Uh, you know, like I just got a manicure, a pedicure, a massage when I walk out the door. That's not the point of preaching. So that should be expected. The language or preached repentance should be expected. The language of repentance, personal application, and specifics. The second thing that will be evident where there is an atmosphere of repentance is that the commands to repentance will be received well. They're not going to be bucked against. Sometimes we, we come to a sermon or we, uh, we begin to see where the preaching's going and we, we go ahead and we all, we're already standing in like shoulder block position. I'm not going to, you're not going to get me with this spiritually. But that's not how we should receive this preaching. It's not going to be murmured about. It's 
not going to be ignored or swept away when the preacher talks about your sins or calls you to repent. It will not be received with bitterness. It's not going to be received with a who do you think you are attitude. Who do I think I am? I'm your shepherd. That's who I think I am. Where there's an atmosphere of repentance, the congregation will receive commands to repent gladly, although sometimes painfully. And eventually, maybe not that day, maybe years down the road or sometime throughout the week, you'll say, thank you for your faithfulness. Pats on the back and boy, what a great sermon. will slowly begin to transition into, boy, that hurt. But thank you. And as we saw this week from Acts chapter 3, this type of accepting of the preaching leads to times of refreshing. See, repentance is always good. Always good. If it is biblical repentance, it's always for the better. And then thirdly, where there's an atmosphere of repentance, repentance will be acknowledged and very often openly. Openly acknowledged. That means personal conversations within the body. As we talk, we're going to talk about things like Here's my sin. Here's my besetting sin. And here's how I've been wrestling with it and how I've been running to the Word with it. And, how, and, and here's how God has been giving me victory here and there over this specific sin. Here's how God has granted me repentance and here's what it looks like now. Changes in lifestyle and belief and practices and worldview brought about by the Spirit will be seen and discussed. There will be times when a man or a woman walks in and you wonder, what, what, what's, happened? what's happening here? What's going on? I could be specific, you know. What's she got on her head? And we just watch. What's, what, what's going on here? And then we just begin to ask. We begin to wonder, well, what's, what's happening? There's a change taking place. Something's going on. And it's not, it's not meant to be, to be carried about like here's my holiness but we should be able to see that in each other's lives, we're changing. None of us are, we heard it this weekend, we are Reformed Baptists in title, but we shouldn't just say, I'm Reformed. I'm Reforming. We haven't gotten there just because the sign's printed. We haven't gotten there. We're always reforming according to the Word of God. And so there will be times when a man or a woman walks in or, or certain things begin to happen or conversations go this way or that way and we recognize something's changing in this person's life. What's going on? What's, what's the Lord doing in your heart? Where have you been? Just, just talk me through it. Not, not to convince, not to argue, but we see the Lord changing people. Where there's an atmosphere of repentance, sin is not covered over, it's not ignored, it is discussed openly, and I, and I mean that it's discussed with sobriety, not openly with frivolity. Oh yeah, we're all sinners, I mean everybody sins, God knows we're sinners, and He's, you know, no, not that. But we will discuss with sobriety our sins. It will become normal to admit we are sinners, we are wrestling with indwelling sin. It's normal for everybody. And God is giving victory. So where there is an atmosphere of repentance, it will be preached, it will be received, and it will be acknowledged. Again, it just becomes the, the atmosphere. These are a people who have not arrived, but who are on a journey. 
Now, maybe when I describe that, you say, well, that's not us. We're not there yet. Maybe I don't think we're to this extreme, but we could get to the point where we act like all of the sins are out there, and the reason we got a good sturdy block building is so that we would have a safe, safe space to come to to get away from all the sin. We walk in the door and we're, you know, just getting all the sin off of us. You know, yuck, I got the sin. Sorry, guys, don't look at me. I got to get the sin off of me. And, whew, all right, how's everybody doing? That's not the case. But we could get to that point. And that's not true. We're not, we're not coming in here to get away from the sin. We're bringing it in with us. We're hoping that God would do a work in us. But, but what can we do to begin to cultivate that? As I describe that atmosphere, if you're thinking, well, that's not us, or, you know, we're, we're maybe moving that way, but what do we need to do to, to cultivate it even better? So here's cultivating an atmosphere of repentance. And it needs to be clear that this is not created or sustained by an individual. This has to be a corporate reality. This means you may be required by God to labor patiently and prayerfully for weeks or months or years before you could look at your church body and say, we're there. It's not your job to force it. It is your job to do your duty in seeking God's help through prayer for the congregation after examining your heart. That's your job. So we start there, but it's not your duty to create it or sustain it. You're not holding the repentance of the church on your shoulders like, well, we're going to do it. I don't, you know, they're all living like that, but I'm, I think I can do this forever. That's not the case. It's got to be a corporate reality. But what can you do? First, you should acknowledge the presence of Christ. Acknowledge the presence of Christ. We've seen already He promises to be with His people. That's individually and that's corporately. His Spirit dwells within every believer and His Spirit resides within every church as we gather under His authority. Remember, He walks in the midst of the lampstands. He is with us. And more often than not, our failure to live in light of those promises or that promised presence is due to the fact that we can't stop and take three minutes to meditate on the truth that He's here and therefore we just don't acknowledge it regularly. It's not something in our minds and in our hearts. We don't stop before we worship or before we gather with the church to think and consider Christ will be there. Christ is going to be here. And, and, and what that means. You have to acknowledge it first. It's your duty to prepare your heart to meet with the gathered saints in corporate worship. And as you do that, take the time to meditate on His personal presence, His spiritual presence. Claim that promise in prayer. Ask for His presence to be manifested clearly and then live that out. Acknowledge it. That's simple. Just acknowledge it. Just act like it's true. That when we gather as a body, Christ is here. Secondly, acknowledge His promised method. His promised method. It's important to remember that Christ speaks especially through the preached Word of God. 
Remember Ephesians 2.17. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. And we pay, we're paying attention to the letter there and we ask the Apostle Paul, when did Jesus go to Ephesus? I remember Galilee. I remember Capernaum. I remember the, 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 the Gerasenes. When did he go to Ephesus? Christ went to Ephesus and preached when Paul went to Ephesus and preached. Christ has given gifts to His church, like Paul, like John, but also ordinary, regular pastor teachers. We see that in Ephesians 4. We're given the task of speaking to God's people on behalf of God through the preached Word. Now, if you don't acknowledge that reality, then your Sabbath will be spent listening to a man give you his opinion. And that's it. And you'll go home and you'll think, it's a great opinion. It was a very well-articulated opinion. Had many points in his opinion but it stops there. But if you understand and acknowledge that the man or men given to your church are gifts from Christ, sent to speak on behalf of Christ through the preached word, then that message is going to carry more weight, right? It's going to mean more. So we have to start there. Acknowledge in your heart and your mind the real spiritual presence of the Lord Jesus as you gather. He's here. Right now, He's here. Second thing you need to do is listen to Christ. Listen to Christ. If He's promised His presence, He's given His men, then surely we see the importance of listening to Christ through His preachers and the preached Word. Listen to this from the second Helvetic Confession. The preached or the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Now let them clarify because we then begin to think, well, you know, does that mean I have some direct divine revelation? I'm No. He says, wherefore, when this Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven. In other words, these men aren't getting direct divine revelation. It's not something new. But they say that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. In other words, don't come to hear me. Don't come to listen to me. Come to listen to Christ speak through His Word. My job is to quote John MacArthur. I'm like a, 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 a bellhop or a, a, a waiter. My job, I don't cook it and I don't eat it. I just try to get it to your table without messing it up first. That's all I do. But they says, the, con, the confession goes on to say, even if he be evil and a sinner, they, they know me. Nevertheless, the Word of God remains still true and good. In other words, that the reformers believed that when a man rightly called and set apart by the church rightly exegetes the Scriptures, and if the application for that day is repent, either individually or corporately, you should feel compelled by the Spirit to repent. And that's how you listen to Christ through His preacher. And very often, I may not clearly give a specific call to repent of a specific sin. But sometimes the Spirit will speak through something I've not said, just from the text I've read. Something grabs you. Don't 
say, well, he wasn't preaching on that, so that's, that's not really what he meant. No, no, let the Spirit grab you. Satan's not going to come to you and tell you to repent. The Spirit of God will come and tell you to repent. And so if that's happening, if he's calling you to repent, listen to his Spirit, even if it wasn't on my mind. Don't brush it off as a strange working of your fleshly conscience. Listen to Christ through His Spirit and repent. And then the third duty is obey the command to repent. All of the acknowledging and all of the hearing in the world is absolutely useless to a congregation if the individual members are not willing to repent, to obey the command from Christ. Remember James says, do not be hearers of the word only, deceiving yourselves, but be doers of the word. You must obey the command. And so listen for yourself. When you're listening to the preacher preach and he begins to delve into specific sins of the heart or of the mind or of the actions, do not begin to surmise who is he thinking about. Who's he talking about? Let's see who all is here. Who could it be? It's not her, not him, I'm pretty sure. That's not what you do when you listen to a sermon. You ask, is that my sin? Am I on his mind? And I've told you before, the answer is yes. You're on my mind. When I write sermons, I've got your faces in my head. I'm thinking, how is this going to apply to him or to her or to him when he goes to that job or to her when she talks to that person? That's on my mind. So the answer to the question, am I on his mind? Is that my sin? Is probably yeah. Listen for yourself. Ask the Lord to examine your heart. Before you listen, as you listen, after you listen, pray that God would examine your heart. Remember, it is absolutely, most certainly vital that we pray for each other as a congregation and how we all hear the Word as a congregation. But it's your job to start first by saying, Lord, examine my heart. Start with me. Lord, Lord show me where I need to change. Even when we talk about corporate repentance, there will not be corporate repentance without individual repentance. And so, listen to sermons for yourself. Ask the Lord to examine your heart. And then the last thing that you can do, the most important thing you can do to begin to create this atmosphere of repentance is live so that your progress will be seen by all. True biblical repentance cannot be proven or confirmed apart from the works of righteousness that accompany a changed heart. In other words, repentance leads to different actions. Repentance is not the actions, but it does produce different actions. And one of the most effective means of corporate repentance and transformation will be the openly proclaimed lives of changed People, when you live differently, those around you will see that difference and they're going to be one of two outcomes. Either they're going to be offended at how you're living. How dare they be so happy, so obedient. How, how, I can't believe. He just thinks he's better than everybody with that. That's going to be one response. Or... They'll be convicted. And they will seek the same difference that you've got. They're going to want to know, what's the Lord doing with you? How, how does this work? 
Show me. Help me. You're going to live it out. Live out what God is working in you. Now, if every one of us will do those things, corporate repentance will be a reality. Acknowledge the presence of Christ, listen to Christ, and obey the command to repent. If we want to have a strong gospel-centered church that pleases the Lord, but we want to receive from Him the blessing of His presence, then we don't just repent as individuals. We do that, but we also repent as a body and we work to cultivate an atmosphere of repentance together. Now, as we turn to the Lord's table, we need to think about this. Just in the same way that we began by considering the death of Christ and Him on the cross, the Lord's Supper is, is specifically for that. Consider, meditate on the man on the tree. As you hold the bread, consider His body broken. As you hold the, the juice, consider His blood poured out. That, the outflow of God's love and kindness towards His people, as Nate prayed, that is meant to lead you to repentance. And as we repent, as we turn from sin and to Christ, the Lord's Supper is, is the, the apex. You remember when I, talked, when, I, when I preached on this? We've met with Christ. This is sort of a hard sermon. We've had some hard sermons. But it's not as though the Lord peeks His head in the door and says, you need to change, get it back, get it right, I'll be back in a week. And He shuts the door. That's not what happens. He sticks His head and He says, you need to repent. Here's what I say. And as a matter of fact, I'd like to come in and sit down and eat with you if you don't mind. I'd like to commune with you. That's the Lord's Supper. He wants to commune with us. These, this, this repentance, again, leads to refreshing. It's a good thing to hear calls to repentance. So as the elements are, are being distributed, consider that, examine your hearts, and then we'll come to the table.